finally probably heard it was, hey, I'm offending them by saying you have to be in the office so I have to watch you work because I don't think that you're going to work if I'm not watching you. Like, you don't have enough pride in your work for me to just say, here's the project and we'll check in and out, have at it. was Dr. Steve Maniak on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Steve Maniak, who is the owner of Pine Animal Hospital in Long Beach, California. Dr. Steve is a really fascinating guy, and what I love about Dr. Steve is he's just very passionate about uh, practice ownership and all that brings, and he's also very interested in technology. And there's something about Steve's personality uh, when I listen to him talk that I really kind of resonate with, and it's this... uh, just passion for whatever you believe in and kind of really hearing that in his voice. And we we talk about uh, the importance of practice ownership and what that has meant to him, um, his involvement with uh, uh, TVC, which is the Veterinary Coalition, and the challenges and the struggles he faced getting from being uh, you know, trying to decide human medicine or vet medicine and to eventually getting into his own practice. And later on, I actually, um, for my own personal business growth, uh, interviewed Steve to get his insights on a lot of technology and his thought process because he's just so heavily involved, which I think is very interesting. Um, most practice owners, you know, that I have worked with really have no interest in, interest in technology. And for, so for Dr. Steve to be really fascinated by it and to really look for ways to embrace the productivity in his practice through technology and really embrace it is kind of a rare situation for a lot of practice owners that I have talked with and worked with. So anyways, Steve has a lot of passion for veterinary medicine, and I really think that you're going to hopefully feed on that passion and hopefully get you excited about your day. So with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. But first, this episode is brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. If there's one thing that we need to change in this world, it's to help the independent veterinary practice owner understand the value of their data and to help them protect it. So if you need help protecting the data in your practice, go to www.luca.vet and download our free ebook, The Five Simple Steps to Protect Your Practice Today. So again, that's www.luca.vet and download our free ebook, Five Simple Steps to Protect Your Practice Today. All right. Do you need video or no? Uh, it doesn't matter. Whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. I'm I'm good with. Cool. With either one. All right. Yeah, it works for me. All right. So yeah, thanks for taking time to uh, talk to me today. Super excited to have you on. So uh, generally, the way I like to get started is just kind of have you explain a little bit about your background, how you got involved in veterinary medicine. You know, what led you into this career path, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah. 
Um, well, just like most veterinarians, grew up with a, a ton of animals um, and a love for animals to begin with. And um, just always found myself gravitating more towards science and um, life sciences um, from an early age. And um, kind of that pathway went towards life sciences, you know, um, into thinking about medicine and the healthcare field um, in high school. And, um, you know, just from a standpoint of family pressure and stuff like that, first started off in human medicine, um, went to medical school for three years. And um, at the time that I was in medical school, um, you know, kind of end of life care type of issues, watching my grandparents go through that and things like that. There were certain aspects that um, I wasn't quite comfortable with, um, wasn't very good at dealing with how things were done in human medicine at that point. Um, plus, just didn't feel like the right thing for me. Uh, and uh, left human medicine and uh, went to vet school and uh, found my real passion, which was, you know, uh, a coupling of uh, love for science and physiology and uh, life sciences, and also being able to help animals and, um, you know, bring that part to society, uh, finding, you know, being an effective part of society in that way. Awesome. And, um, so, uh, after vet school worked, for the most part, my first job I spent there, I believe it was two years and really loved it. Um, but I always knew that I was going to be a hospital owner, uh, wanted to lead a team. Um, and so, uh, soon after that started planning on opening a hospital and um, three years after that school um, built and opened up Pine Animal Hospital in Long Beach. Whoa, that's awesome. Three years after graduating. Yeah. That's amazing. And here we are seven years later. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, one thing I would, so, you know, you mentioned one thing that's said, you know, when you're going through human med- medical school, you kind of, you mentioned this end of life care issues. And I think one thing that that really kind of struck a chord with me is that there's this guy, uh, David Ben something, I can't remember his last name. Um, he's an Iranian Im- immigrant who came to the U.S. and he started his own business. And now he kind of helps a lot of small business owners achieve their own dreams. And so he's just a person that I kind of watch and follow and listen to. But he was talking about, um, you know, certain aspects in our life that cause us to change. And it's those catalysts of change that generally cause us to grow and be better and so they he was kind of looking at statistical analysis between these big life-changing events and then how that impacts a a business owner in general and one of the things that he mentioned was end of life and kind of these big end of life issues and things that can come out of 
losing the death of, say, a good friend or potentially a family member. And it can either go one of two ways, right? You can either a friend can a friend can die like, you know, it's the buddy who's out working out every day and has a heart attack in, in their 40s. And we don't know why. And so everybody's like, oh, oh, no, we got to uh, I, I don't I'm not going to work so hard. You know, I need to step back. And so the business declines or it's the other people that are like they see that and they're like, oh, man, there's still so much more I want to accomplish and things I want to do. So I was very curious for you seeing the end of life care and the human side of things. It seemed to have a catalyst into helping you change into the veterinary profession as opposed to human medicine. So maybe can you elaborate on that, that catalyst? What was that pivot point for you? Um, well, I think that was, that was part of it. Um, it was something that I certainly was not comfortable with in human medicine. And until my clinical year of dealing with that, I mean, I had, there were so many patients and for, for med students, uh, especially in that first clinical year and third year, you're dealing with mostly geriatric patients that are constantly in the hospital. And it's, it's, you know, the amount of times where you show up to talk to them and, and it's like, leave me alone, stop poking and prodding me, let me go home and even if it's my my last days, even more so, let me go with it with my dignity, with how I want to go. And it wasn't an aspect back then of what do people want for themselves. It was like, you know, medicine forcing or the medical field, medical professionals forcing what life was onto people. And I wasn't comfortable with that. You know, the, the amount of times I would bring up, you know, this person, this patient really wants to go home. Can we, can we send them home? And they're like, no, if they're talking about that, they're, they're depressed. Send them to psychiatry. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's, so it, at that point, I, I wasn't comfortable with that aspect, and rightfully so that I didn't end up in human medicine, even though we do do it much better today. I don't know that we, because I'm just not in the field, to know whether we do it perfectly right. There, I mean, I would say perfect is not the right word because no one's ever perfect, especially yeah. when it comes to life and medicine and all of that, but um, they're probably a bit closer today to having that respect for um, morbidity and quality of life versus the length of time that we're here. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on is I, you know, I just had a call with H and she runs the uh, education stuff all for the Colorado Veterinary Medical Association. And we were just talking and she was talking about how, you know, when she looked at what she did medically, she was trying to determine what were the things that really energized her and made her excited about life. And what was fascinating is one of the things that she said was 
that it was the end of life terror that she really enjoyed. You know, she was terrified to cut open an abdomen and she, if she never had to do another surgery again, she was fine. But there was this end of life care that she really, that really set her on fire and really got her excited to do her job at the end of the day. And, you know, as we're talking about this conversation, you know, some of the things that you're talking about just makes me think as, and especially as somebody who just lost my dog of 14 years earlier this year, you start to think about that end of life and how, you know, my dog had kidney disease, right? And so he was really, really sick. And the best thing we could do was just to put him down, right? I mean, there was no, there was no turning back. And there's, there's kind of this debate and topic in the human side of things where, you know, if I had that kind of debilitating kidney disease, would, would I, would, would I be allowed to make that decision and say, you know, I'm done. You know, like there's no turning back. Like I can be hooked up to dialysis machines and all that stuff. There's no turning back. So now looking at it from the other perspective, what is your perspective when it comes to end of life care for the animals and patients that you treat now as a veterinarian? Well, you know, it's, I, I agree. It's a surprisingly rewarding thing when it's done right. Um, and when I say, it's done right. There, there are two aspects to that. One, when, uh, when, when you have clients that, um, have found peace with having made that decision, I think that's an important thing. Um, and respecting, showing them the respect that you get it. Um, you understand why they're making that decision and and giving them that piece a lot of times um our our clients are our um pet caretakers are um actually looking to that for us you know just for us to say it's okay <laughs> you know um and and when when they get that peace of mind it's like light bolts go off, that weight is lifted off their shoulders, and it's because they can't bear to to watch their pet that they love um, go through what they're going through anymore. And um, so there, there's a hugely rewarding aspect to it. And when, um, when we do it in such a peaceful, calm, quiet manner in which the clients kind of get to call the shot of how it's done. I mean, it's hugely, hugely rewarding. I mean, I've, I've had everything. I've seen it all when it comes to that. I've had people throw massive parties. Um, and I show up, you know, to the party. <laughs> and it, it, it'd be like a, a human's funeral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and everyone sits around watching it happen and, and you're like, wow, what, what an experience. But, but they're so grateful for having the ability to do it their way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome because, um, you kind of, you allow people to, you give them the respect to it being done how they would like it to be done. And I, and I think that's, 
that's hugely important in, in veterinary medicine is that while we know, you know, one thing that in my hospital that's really important that, that I tell people, I can know medicine, you know, the ins and outs of aspects of medicine, but I don't know your pet. I don't know what they're going through every minute of the day and what, how it's affecting you and, and at home and, and all of that. And when we show that respect to the client, that's, that's a big thing. That's a huge thing. Um, in, in doing things, I think the right way. Yeah. You know, one thing that you mentioned there is that you like to give them the respect. And then earlier you said, you know, when you wanted to own your own practice, you wanted to lead a team. So it seems that like, I think with leader, with leader, proper leadership comes a real understanding of respect. So how is it that you, you know, how is it that you approach respect with not only your, your customers, but also with the team that you're leading? Yeah. I, I mean, it comes down to number one, um, personality. When it comes to the team, it comes down to the right personalities, um, w- within the team and the program. I mean, we're not cut out for everyone. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people for, and there are pros and cons to to both things, but one thing that sets apart my team, one thing that we look for is first and foremost a, a passion for for working in the field. I mean, let's let's face it, there when it comes to the monetary aspect, there are a lot more lucrative things. Doctor, uh, you know reception, uh, technician, they can all go elsewhere and have much more lucrative um, experience. Even within the veterinary field, they, they can have much more lucrative um, positions. But they come work at Pine Animal Hospital. They come work for us because we have this um, thought process of are, are you into it? <laughs> do, you, do you love this? You know, um, and is it enough to offset the fact that you could be making more elsewhere? And, um, so that respect, it, it comes down to personality first and, um, them knowing full well that me and the other leaders in on the team, have that same thought process. Um, and then it comes down to re- respecting and showing the respect and dignity that each person wants for themselves. And the same thing goes for our clients. Uh, you know, the one thing that I think the, the biggest thing is that we show the respect and dignity to our clients that they expect from us. And, you know, one thing that I'm not embarrassed about is there are a lot of people that, there are a lot of clients that I ask not to come back because they just have a different mindset and um, a different mindset on respect and dignity. You know, they there are a lot of clients that feel that 
if they are paying enough money, they can treat anyone however the heck they want. And that's just not the case for us. It's, uh, I'd rather be closed, um, uh, or not doing well than to, um, uh, you know, be serving people that can treat us poorly because they have the will to pay the most amount of money. It's, it's all about dignity and respect. Uh, for me, you know, when, when it, the first thought in opening a hospital was, how do I want to be treated if and when I take my pet to the vet? And that was number one. And that, that's the utmost thing, um, for my staff, for my clients, all of that. And if, if other people have a different mindset, then that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We just might not be the right place for them. If other people that are applying for the jobs have different mindsets on what it means to work, um, you know, that's okay. We just might not be the right place for them. You know, you know, one thing you, you, know, you mentioned there, some, you've asked some clients not to come back. And then you also said, I would rather have the business be closed or I'd rather not be doing financially well, which I think is a really powerful statement to make because you are kind of, you know, myself included, you know, in the business that I am in, I have also had to know that like, no, these are a certain subset of moral values that I stand on. And there are certain, maybe larger businesses or organizations that are not going to like what I'm standing for. But at the end of the day, I know that this is really important to not only me, but also the practice. And hopefully for me, you know, it comes down to hopefully then that gives, there's this term that gets thrown, you know, that is coming out. I shouldn't say thrown around because I feel it's a really important thing, but this term of this idea of psychological safety within the organization and your staff and your team and how is it that you can stand behind a certain subset of ideas to provide people with that sort of psychological safety because then you know another thing you mentioned kind of a scroll moment but you know another thing we talked about a little bit is yeah like even as a certified vet tech or whatever the designation is in your state you might be able to go make money more money say at Home Depot or something, stocking shelves, right? But what we also know from this kind of idea of finding value in the workplace, my buddy Josh, you know, he does a lot of work in this area, but really it's not about the money a lot of times. And if you have certain aspects like psychological safety and you have the culture, at the end of the day, people find value and meaning in their work and that's what keeps them driven and that's what keeps them going. So what are some other ways you know, that you are working to kind of lead your team and to kind of use that term to provide them the kind of this psychologically safe space where they know that they are a valued member of the team and they can do this work in an area that they truly love and are passionate about. Well, um, you know, I, I think the one thing that, that has been um, shown within, I'd say, the last half year to a year is finding those leaders um, to to pass that down. That um, the the true team approach. I mean, the thing is, is this whole thought process of team and 
team building and all that stuff, I, to me, like, there's, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, you know, corp- large corporations love to, to do this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, do, do the team members feel that from the top down? You know, um, you can have large corporations where, uh, where they can do tons of team building exercises. But all it takes is that one time that a manager gets a call from the executives five states away and says, uh, you know, you gotta tighten, tighten things up. We're spending a lot on salaries. Um, and I want you to, uh, cut some people. And then the manager has to go and cut people, especially today. They, they go to a mother who had to call out several days, um, because, you know, her kids are, are home. Um, and she couldn't find someone to wash them on that day. So she had to, call out sick or call out because of that. And all of a sudden you have a manager that's saying, I got to let you go. And, um, then, uh, that person's like, but I can't afford to be let go right now. I got kids to feed and I only left because I couldn't find childcare those days. My kids are home. What was I supposed to do? And the manager goes, well, it's either you or me. So it's, going to have to be you. So that one time that happens, you can take 10 years of team building and say goodbye to it. It doesn't matter. You can do all the, so all the corporations that pull the team building exercises, they can know full well all the money they spend on that is for nothing because it all erodes when they look at numbers, when some executive is looking at numbers and telling them to tighten the screws because and it goes down the line. So there you go. And that's, you know, that's where we're at in veterinary medicine is this crossroads of in North America of are we going towards the EU model of becoming all corporate? Um, and I got to tell you, it, you know, it, it started off with, yes, the crazy expensive for expenses for vet school. And then um, yes, we all needed to learn financial aspects in vet school and, and all of that stuff. But now it's turned into where instead of, uh, graduates coming out looking for where's the greatest learning opportunity? Cause my learning has now just begun. I've been given the tools and the keys to learn. Now I learn. Now I'm going to learn. Instead of that, they're looking at, their egos are tied to, hey, are you going to pay me the highest salary or at minimum the crazy averages out there that the corporations are giving? Not, hey, are you going, am I, is this going to be the best learning experience so that I have the most fulfilling veterinary career possible? And you said you said so many things there. There are so many things I want to hear you elaborate on. No, it was awesome. Um, 
So I'm just going to start with the first couple because the first, I mean, the first couple of things you said there, I mean, I was just like, I don't know, it just kind of made me glow because I have been there and I have done that, like, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Because, you know, you talk about, you know, there's a lot of talk, but do the team members actually feel it? You know, that's one thing that you said. And I thought back and I was with this organization and, you know, we had worked to create these values and the, you know, it was like, this is what the, the, so again, there was a lot of talk about the understanding of what these values meant to the company. And we even had like other members of the team join in on building the, the values. But then there was always this question from the top that was like, why are, why does it seem like nobody's buying in, right? Like, why is it that it just doesn't seem like it's resonating? And then, you know, you talk about that one time, you know, it's like that one time you make this the mistake that that 10 years of team building and the value building and all that stuff you do goes out the window. And what that made me think is that for, for us as an organization, it wasn't the one time. It was a consistent message from the top. It was different from the value set that we had built and it was clear, but the top didn't want to listen. You know, the, the top thought, this is a really great idea. We, this is going to help motivate staff. They're going to be involved. And again, it was just a lot of talk, but the top didn't buy into that same value set. And it was clear and the staff knew it and they felt it. And that's why they didn't buy in. And so when I was listening to you talk about that and I could kind of hear you get a little bit energized and fire up, I was like, thank God there's somebody else out there that understands this stuff, you know, because it is, it's so important. Yeah. So a question for you is, you know, as a business owner, there are times when we do have to think about the tough stuff, right? We do have to think about the financial decisions and we, there's a, a million other things that we have to think about that the staff doesn't see or have to deal with. So how is it that you navigate as a leader of your staff so that, because in, inevitably, like even myself as a leader, I'm going to make that one mistake, which could potentially be detrimental to how the staff feels and, and how they feel, you know, treat how they look at me as a leader. So if you make that mistake, how do you make sure that it doesn't ruin everything else that you've been trying to do? Simple communication, you know, owning up to the mistake. Um, just as important, look, as long as you come out and you tell people, you show people, hey, I'm human and I made a mistake and I'm really sorry. When you do that, it's just such a powerful message. I mean, we learned this in vet school for um, when you do make a mistake because you have to make mistakes in order to grow no matter what you do. And do you hide those mistakes or do you um, own up to it? And it's so much more powerful to own up to it, to say, you know what? I'm human and I made a mistake. And that goes across the board. Again, all the same things, how, how we treat clients and how we treat staff, how we treat each other in the team is exactly the same. It, it comes down to the same principles, you know, owning up, saying, I made a mistake. I, you know, I, I didn't mean to cause this harm and I'm always trying my best, but I'm going to make mistakes and I made a mistake. 
Yeah, you know, it made me think of a, a conversation I just had with my uh, friend. He runs this video production production and marketing company for the vet space called Videos, and we were uh, talking with Craig. His name is Craig, and we were talking with him about you know how he was leading his staff and what he was trying to do. And what was interesting, and as I was listening to you say that, you know, just owning up to the mistake or being being willing to say, okay, maybe I was wrong here, and now having again that open communication that you talked about that's so important i'm now willing to make another you know i'm willing to make a different decision and when this whole covid thing hit and this the staff was like hey his staff was like hey i think we should start working from home and he was very clear with them he's like well i'm worried about if we're not together as a team in the office i'm worried about the our production like our overall how how much are we able to actually get done in a day and he said that this conversation was like kind of very heated and very hot, so much so that one team member kind of got really got upset. But, you know, in that hour call, he was able he's, he's like, I turned 180 degrees because he had that open communication. He was willing, I think, a being willing to admit that he wasn't necessarily on board initially, but giving his staff the space to say, why don't you agree with me? Right. Rather than just saying this is a dictatorship. Here I am to make this happen. Um, and so, yeah, so he's, you know, in that hour call, he went 180 degrees. And now that staff is working from home, he's like, you know, we may continue this even after the whole COVID deal. And just allowing his staff to kind of be a part of that conversation. Listening, I, I think like that first step in which you hear people out, um, is it, it, that's, that's the key right there. Because if, if you don't have that, you're, they're, they're lost anyways. You're, you're not going to, um, be able to have a conversation. There's in, in team, in, in the team atmosphere, there's no such thing as a one-way conversation. It's, it's gotta be a two-way. Um, and I think especially through, these times of quarantine and rapid change, the most important place is, is not to dictate, um, what changes you want to make at any one point is actually to hear people out. Um, because, you know, hearing people out and hearing people say, well, I'm concerned about safety. And you say, and then all of a sudden you hear that and you go, okay. I get it. Um, or, you know, in the case that you just brought up, that one person may have been enraged and that uh, leader uh, that you were talking about finally probably heard it was, hey, I'm offending them by saying you have to be in the office so I have to watch you work because I don't think that you're going to work if I'm not watching you. Like, you don't have enough pride in your work for me to just say, here's the project, and we'll check in and out, have at it. You know, that's really important. That's really important for a team, for each member to know that, hey, I've been uh, given this project, this, this function, and they're going to sit back and watch to see it be done and it's up to me to do it or not 
And then they're going to come back to me and give me feedback. But it's really important to give that, allow that space for people to, to perform and to, to function, to show what they're all about. I mean, that's part of that passion is, you know, you give them, you give them that leeway. You know, one thing you were mentioning earlier when you're talking about is you kind of gave this example of a staff member, especially with the issues that we're facing around COVID and being able to find childcare and kind of all these new problems that are rising. And how have you been kind of navigating this interesting time with your staff and understanding that because the hard thing about most vet, vet, vet practices, you know, as somebody who's in the cybersecurity and data protection realm and kind of IT realm as a whole, it's very easy for me to work remotely, right? Like I, I manage clinics all across the country. It doesn't matter where they are. It's very easy for us to manage, you know, to, to work remotely, not a problem. But when it comes to actually taking care of a patient, there's a lot we can do with telemedicine and all these different tools, but there still comes to a point where we need that actual physical interaction, whether that's through a brick and mortar or maybe an at-home kind of care, whatever your business model is. So how is it that you've been navigating these challenging times with COVID, understanding the challenges that your staff are facing and also the challenges that you are facing as a business owner? So I think, number one, um, I think the most important way to look at it is to find the most balanced approach. You know, there's so many extremes today in, you know, all aspects of our society. Though, especially the last four or five months, we have such major extremes in society. And the important part is finding that balance. Um, especially with the quarantine stuff, you know, we, we, we take, okay, what's one extreme? What's the other extreme? And then we come together as a team. We hear each other's concerns and together we create a plan of how do we create the safest way of doing things and yet allowing us to continue providing the service that we're known for. And, and that's what it comes down to. Um, for, for us, it wasn't as difficult because we've always been paperless. And we've relied heavily on, uh, communicating through text message. And I'm fairly technologically savvy. So it was like, you know, a flip of the switch. And all of a sudden our histories are all online forms and things like that. Um, in order for us to get that information to be able to provide our, to provide the service and, you know, communicating how we're doing it. Um, again, does it suit everyone's needs? No. And we let those people know. We're like, hey, we're taking a balanced approach. If it doesn't suit your needs, I'm sure there are practices out there that will, that you might find will work better for you. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you know, yes, we want to help as many uh, pet caretakers um, and pets as possible but we also have to do it in a way that allows us to 
care for as many pets as we feel is the most proper way of doing it. Um, and again, it's a team approach. We are our leaders um, amongst our, our teams um, within the hospital talked about, well, what is the most balanced approach? And we took it. And each time we, we check in, do we need to make a change? Um, do we need to go, you know, at one point we started letting people back in for exams. Um, but here are the ways that we are doing it. Um, recently California has been shut down again and we said that's, you know, we are going to abide and we're going to curbside only. You know, the interesting thing is when we did the exam thing, most people still opted for curbside because they loved sitting in their car and being able to do whatever they wanted um, or being able to drop off their pet, go home, and we text or call them to discuss everything. They loved it, you know, but we also have a different clientele. We have, uh, you know, Long Beach is kind of a very diverse, progressive, um, forward-looking place so people are kind of into that they're into um sitting on their text messaging on their phones uh for their communication uh ways and and things like that but um yeah uh sometimes it uh takes a little bit longer um and sometimes there are some people that are annoyed and we say hey sorry we're doing the best we can the the thing, again, is it all comes down to respect and dignity for both our staff members and uh, for all of us treating each other that way and our clients back and forth is once when they know that we're doing the best we can, we're trying the best we can, and we know that they're trying to be as patient as they could possibly be in these times with us. That's when we still are practicing the same service that we were before because we have that thought process along the, across the board. You know, one thing that you're, you know, I've kind of heard you talk about is, you know, kind of this quality of care. But what I've also kind of hear, heard you kind of tease out of there is even in these challenging times, it's like, well, we still want to. It's like everybody's kind of practicing, hopefully, if you're a veterinarian, you're practicing a certain level of care and you're providing good medicine. But what's really more important is how you're treating your clients. And I've heard you say, you know, how do I want to be treated? How do I want to go? You know, what I what do I expect when I go to the veterinarian? And, and again, another little bit of a scroll moment here. But one thing that makes me think about personally in my own business is, you know, there are things that I see a lot of practices doing that their clients expect of them, right? So like maybe with text messaging, like there's a lot of practices that are leveraging text messaging, like in a dental procedure. So they can be like, Hey, look at this tooth. It's really infected. We need to pull this out. Or maybe it's cracked and it's causing your dog a lot of pain. They can, they take the picture, they send it. And there's kind of this direct immediate communication. And for lack of, you know, unfortunately the technology business as a whole has a really bad, wrap when it comes to communication and how are we how do we as a industry communicate with our clients and our customers and so it's been one thing that i've been kind of really driving home is like well let's think about what's you know when you take your dog to the vet what do you expect if you were if your dog was getting a dental what sort of technology would you be leveraging so that you knew exactly what was going on 
and having that conversation to make them think about, well, this is how I would expect to be treated when I go to the vet. Okay. Now think about, you know, essentially when we take care of their data and their network and all their stuff, we're essentially their vet clinic for their, you know, we're their veterinarian for, for their technology. So how should we communicate? So how is it that you as a leader are kind of help to educate your staff on what's important is you as a business owner in that communication and really, yes, we're going to practice good medicine, but there are certain subset of standards we need to apply even in these challenging times to make sure our customers are treated right. Well, I think, you know, that, that part becomes easier when, when your team has, has won that initial aspect. Um, when, when they have the freedom to have the confidence in what they're doing, that they're doing the best they can, when, when people are given that freedom of, of knowing that, you know, when, when leadership says, I know you're doing the best you can. And when you have that, it really becomes so much easier. I mean, people would not believe that when you loosen the reins and you let people just be them, as long as you have people that are are there because they want to be there, not because it's just a paycheck, but because they really you know, they have confidence in the work that they are providing in the, in what they want to accomplish, then that part is not something that you'd be surprised how much of this you don't actually, as a leader, have to bluntly say. You don't have to communicate. So this is how you're going to do it. Yes, there are sometimes there are little things. Hey, this is how you did it. I think it'd be better if you did it this way because of this. Yes. It, you know, you, you tweak things. But as long as the overall perspective and as long as the leaders have um, this view of everyone that I'm leading, I know is trying their best to, to do the best thing for their function um, and functioning the best way they can, then you don't have these issues. Um, you don't, you don't have to have these overall huge, um, massive discussions. Uh, and, and that's what it comes down to. Yes, there are always little tweaks that you can communicate, but you have to have those, you have to give people the freedom to have those times where you need to make the little tweaks rather than these big, huge, massive gargantuan changes yeah and i think it comes back to the original original point you made a while ago too is just listening right and that open line of communication again to think of another personal example as i was trying to grow as a leader and again i was at this other organization and there was this problem i was like well our you know our help desk the kind of the front lines people almost like the receptionist for in a practice right the people that are kind of taking all the inbound direct line communication it was like 
you know, the, the help desk, they need, really need some training. Like we, we, we as a leadership team have dropped the ball in training. And so we set up like this three day training thing. And then I went around and I started asking all the techs. I'm like, well, what did you think of that? You know, was it helpful? And I got the feedback. They're like, no, like I thought it was a complete waste of time. They're like, I've been doing this job for 10 years or six years or seven years. And I'm like, okay, well, what would have been helpful to you? You know? And they're like, well, I just need to know specifically what maybe I'm missing the gap on is, right? Like I, I went in there thinking like, okay, I am missing all these things, but a lot of this stuff was like, okay, yeah, we know that we're doing that. So what am I, what am I specifically doing that is not right or wrong? You know? And what was interesting is, is I, as, as I was like, okay, so I went back to the team, the leadership team that, or that I should say the executive team. So I'm not sure how much leadership was really there, but I went back to them and I was like, Hey, I had a conversation with everybody on help desk and this is what they're saying. And what was interesting is that it was like, I was hitting, talking to a brick wall. No, no, no. They just need training. No. What do you, what? And it was like, and I'm like, you don't get it. You're just not listening. You know, like, so again, sometimes it seems, you know, you talked about having these big conversations and these complex topics, but sometimes it's just as simple as listening, right? Just what do they have to say? And it comes down to a lot of times common sense. You know, um, the worst, the thing that I hate more than anything is when, um, both from the standpoint of when I wasn't a leader and discussing with other people, well, why do we do it this way? Because that's the way it's been done. Uh, that is the worst answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because someone showed me how to do it that way. You mean, you never asked why do we do it that way? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and even as a leader, I, I remember, so I had a different head tech from years back that, um, and I remember asking a technician, why are you doing it that way? Oh, because so-and-so told me that's the way we do it. Okay. That's news to me, number one. And number two, did you ask why? No. I just follow directions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and as I, again, like, I feel like this is just a personal therapy session for myself because I hear so many stories and I remember having a conversation with a, with a guy, with a guy who was like, uh, you know, he was a partner in an organization and we were talking about this new, this new process that we were going to implement for our customer base. And he was, he was adamant. Well, we have to do it this way. And I was like, for me, I knew that the team saw it as like a complete waste of time and that nobody really understood why it was important. And so while we're on this, in this meeting, I was like, why, you know, I was asking the question, why, why is it? Well, I have to be able to run these reports. Okay. Well, how often are you running those reports? And what was frustrating was, is that you could tell that the truth was, is that the reports were never actually getting ran. 
they were never actually using it. It was just they in the back of their mind, they were at some point were told that they had to record, you know, it this way. It had to be done X reason, you know, X reason Y. So really we spent like 45, 45 minutes just being trying to get them to trying to understand why they wanted it done a certain way. But they were just, again, I think in this stuck in this, well, that's what somebody told me. And, you know, that's what I think that's what the sales group that I worked with a long time ago said that if you want to be good and do sales and be profitable, that's how you need to measure it. And so at the end of the meeting, I was like, okay, how about you, you step away from this meeting and understand exactly what you need to be able to report on to understand if this contract is profitable and we'll come back to the table and determine what's the best method for getting that done. And what was so frustrating is even in the next meeting, it was still kind of the same answer, but it's, it's like some people just don't get it. Yeah. You know, one- and, and again, that's the, that, that culture thing. The culture of a team is, uh, you know, and, and when you have no question is off limits and, and I actually expect my clients to ask, well, why, why do you want to run that test? Why? Because, uh, you know, and that takes out to me, that's, that takes, I don't need to train doctors on how to sell a client on, (laughs) you know, I, I tell applicants for, for the veterinary position, one thing you're not going to hear from me is how to sell a client. (laughs) I'm going to tell you is there is one way we do things here. We flat out, even if they don't ask, we tell them why, how, what, when. Client understands that, boom, done. You don't have to say anything else. You don't have to say anything else. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And that's not sales. That's just medicine. (laughs) That's just education. Right. You know, you do that and that's it. And so for my staff, when... When we have new hires, I always say, and, and a lot of times we hire people outside of the veterinary industry and I do that on purpose because they have, they don't have tunnel vision anymore. I have tunnel vision and I know that and I respect the fact that I have tunnel vision. So when, if I hire a new receptionist and she's never been in the veterinary industry, I say, look, we've been doing things the same way in a lot of ways like this. I'm not saying that we should do it this way. So I want you to ask, well, why do we do this? Why do we do that? And, and more than anything, I would love to hear, you know what? I think it'd be better if we did this because then I know the wheels are turning into, you know, I'm really into this and I want to better, um, the team that I'm working with by coming up with these ideas and not having the fear of someone saying, well, we don't do it that way. So no. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do it that way and we're not going to do it that way because this, this, and this, because here are the, the, the problems with doing it that way. Here's why this might be a better, or I might say, Hmm, I think we should try that. You know, and having that from every single person that walks in the door, that is huge. That's the key. So a question for you. So let, like, let's say I'm a receptionist and we're talking about maybe client intake and I'm like, 
I ask you why, and you're like, I don't know. And then I, so I say I come up with a new idea. I'm like, uh, I think we should have the customers fill out this online web form. Then when that way, when they get here, it's going to save us 20 minutes of time or whatever. But let's say for some reason, this new online web form, which I think is a receptionist, is going to save a lot of time, falls flat on its face. There's a lot of technical problems. The customers aren't really adapting. How do you provide that safe, that kind of psychological safety again, this idea that when that idea fails, that they're not, they're, it, you don't discourage them in a way that they don't want to keep trying to be creative and come up with new ideas and ways to get better? Uh, so I, I think again, hearing them out, you know, I've, and, and I've been having this conversation over the last couple of weeks. Um, there are some inefficiencies that have popped up. And so my manager, me and my head receptionist have been thinking about how do we make things more efficient? Because we're getting inundated with tons of new patients. Um, and it's taking up so much of our schedule that we don't have the ability to see our current clients for when they're sick. And they're getting annoyed. And I'm getting annoyed that I have to send them to emergency hospitals for even stuff. For like, yes, it's fairly urgent, but it's not like emergency hospital dying issues. And so we have to think about, well, what what things can we change right now so that we are still seeing some sick pets uh, of our current clients and patients um, and yet still be able to potentially see new clients. So we said, Okay. Well, for clients that have never been here, we're going to put them a little bit lower on the list of priority as far as how soon can they get in uh, so that we have some open spaces for our current patients and clients. And, you know, here are the avenues that we're going to take to do that. I mean, the jury is still out today, but now we're getting a lot of no-shows because a lot of the new clients, they're booking out in advance, but they're booking out in five different places, and whoever sees them first, they're checking they're going. their appointments. Whoever sees them first, you know, they go to, and that's not necessarily us. So the jury is out, and I might at the end of this week say, this might not be a good idea, but it doesn't require me saying it's not a good idea. I'm going to go back to my manager and my head receptionist and say, what do you think? Is this working? Um, what should we do? How do we tweak it? And it's not a matter of 10 different meetings from like, you, you know, the, the benefit is that we're an independent practice where we work as a team to make those changes. We're not calling up a regional manager who has to have a meeting with, you know, executives from five states away, um, and the change gets uh, occurs six months later when we're no longer in quarantine. 
Yeah. I, I'm, I'm laughing just because, again, like, thinking back to prior experiences, like, there's been so many times where it's like, we should have a meeting on that. And I'm like, really? Do we really need to have a meeting about exactly. this? Like, probably not, you know? Like, yeah. we don't need to have a meeting just for the sake of a meeting. But I, I like, but I really liked your approach there where you're like, going back to them and asking them for their feedback. Like, I think that this isn't working. And what, you know, another thing that you brought up, what was interesting is I saw on the veterinary hospital managers association forum. And this, this kind of does seem to be a common problem of this kind of no, this no call, no show, you know, a lot of new, new clients not showing up. And, you know, when you mentioned, you know, they're probably book, they're booking at a whole bunch of different hospitals and then seeing which is the first one that will get them in and taking and taking it. Um, is an interesting perspective because I hadn't even thought about that. And I didn't even see that in the thread. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. Anyways, I just want to say that, that I thought that was an interesting take. Yeah. It's but, a, it's a huge problem today because we have so many new parents. Yeah. Which, which I think is a whole nother, I think the industry is really excited, but also very nervous, right? Cause what happens when people start going back to work? What, how is the care for all those animals going to continue and what's their quality of life look like? And I think that's a whole nother discussion um, because now they can no longer be a full-time pet parent. Right. Yeah. Which I think is, which is interesting, but I just to kind of circle back to the original idea we were talking about, I really loved the idea that you, it seemed like your thought process was to initially broach the conversation with them. Hey manager, Hey receptionist, what do you guys think? How do you think this is working? Not to come down from the top and say, these no call no shows. This is a big problem. Let them find the problem and bring it out. And then maybe you, if you know the problem and they're not sussing it out, maybe kind of guiding them into seeing your, the problem and what you're seeing. Right. I think it, again, it creates for this creative space that allows people to make mistakes. It allows them to say, Oh yeah, you're right. Well, okay. So let's pivot and change here so that we can grow and be better. And it just creates for such a better team environment. Yeah, exactly. So as we're, we're almost to the hour here and there's another thing that I would love to, for you to talk on. And I know you, that you're really heavily involved in TCB. So what does that stand for again? The veterinary TBC. cooperative. The, yeah, the veterinary co- co- cooperative. So TBC. And, you know, one thing that we kind of talked on is you, you know, ironically, you were like, you know, are we going to go to the all corporation EU style, mo- style model? And why this is really fascinating for me is I was just having a conversation with a, with Dr. Aubrey, who is in South Africa, and then he practices part-time in the UK. And we were talking about just this fact about how there's, you know, in the UK, there's, I think, like he said, 6,000 practices, and it's like 60, 65 or 75% of them are corporately owned, which is really fascinating. And then we were talking about the dynamics in Germany and how Germany right now is like 98% privately owned, and they have kind of a completely different model there but i would love to kind of talk about you know the the veterinary coal the veterinary coalition is that is that what it's called um it's independent practice you said right like over four thousand independent practices are part of this so what is that about are you um what are your guys thoughts on this corporate buyout model um i'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about that well one thing that i want to know is how does the quality of service compare in the EU, um, in the UK and Germany, um, compared to us, uh, here in, in North America, number one. And the UK model, that changed in the last recession. 
you know, they were 65% in before the last recession in 2007. And that flipped right at that time. And um, I know that in 2010, when I graduated in 2013, when um, TVC was started um, by Rich Morris, and I was on that first board, he and I had that this conversation. Hey, 2025 rolls around. If we don't do something about it, we're going to look like the UK thing where we're going to flip to all corporate practice. Now, here we are, 2020, and I think because of uh, COVID, that's sped up by two, three years. I think that if we don't do something right now, by 2023, we'll be 65, 75% corporate practice. And the question is, is that bad or is that good? I mean, I'm on the side of that's not a good thing because one, the corporate model, again, you're, you're starting to look at what is the goal of the corporation. Number one, it's dollars. How much money are we making? Um, independent veterinary practices, should our first goal be how much money are we making? I don't think so. To me, it's what's the longevity of this business um, through the quality of care? Am I providing the best possible service I can? Because that's going to keep this business going. And, and I think to me, that's, that's, that's what, um, success means to me. Success does not mean to me the getting the, the highest bills, getting, uh, you know, having the highest, uh, return monetarily today. I just don't see it that way. Now, I'm sure my financial backers are not happy with that answer. <laughs> but yeah. one thing that, you know, I, I just think it's not good for the profession because, you know, one, one thing that, you know, you look at what our egos are tied to. Um, for me, you know, when, when I went through vet school, it was how well did I, did I do on the test? How well am I doing? on on the test, how well am I learning? Um, and then uh, as we're graduating, each vet student, each graduate, it's like, what is the quality of the internship that I've landed? What is the quality of the first practice, um, the first job that I got? What is the quality of the medicine that they're practicing or the quality of service that they're providing? And then after that, it was, how well am I diagnosing um, things? How quickly and how well am I performing surgeries? How happy are my clients? And now as a hospital owner, it's what is the reputation of, of my practice? So now we throw in today's aspect, the monetary aspect. 
And now is it instead, instead of um, what is the quality of the internship or the quality of service that's providing at the first job that I got, it's how much am I going to get paid? What are my benefits? And then it turns into, after that, it's, um, you know, how much uh, is each client paying me? And then after that, or how much is each client paying the hospital? Am I uh, the highest billing uh, doctor in the practice? And then after that, if they become part of a, you know, beyond that, the corporations owning it, it's what are the num what are how much is the practice making? All of a sudden, it has nothing to do about quality of care and quality of service. And that is bad for our industry. That is really bad. That takes out the whole aspect. You know, you ask kids today, a lot of them want to become vets. Do any of them say, I want to become a veterinarian because mommy and daddy told me that would be the most money I can make? Because all of a sudden, now that's what it's going to be. Congratulations. Do we really want that? No. I don't think so. You know, one thing that you said that I've kind of heard you say throughout this, and to circle back to a statement you originally made, you're like, I would rather be closed or I would rather not be doing financially well. But I think I think what a lot of people lose today is that, and then I guess, well, I should add this other piece first. And because a lot that we're also talking about the why, right? Get to the why of a lot of things. And are you familiar with Simon Sinek? Uh, fairly. I, yeah. I that up a lot. Okay. So yeah, he has this whole book that's like start with why, and now he does this whole corporate thing to really make this mental shift in a lot of these bigger organizations. And anyways, he did, he's a really amazing guy. Uh, he has this amazing TED talk that came out like I think ten years ago that really kind of set his career on fire. But it's called the Power of Why. And what I think the thing that he talks about is is, is that if we as business owners and as people start with why people are going to get behind that and support us. And generally what that means is they're going to support our business and we're going to be financially okay. You know what I mean? Maybe even really financially well off, but it has to start with the why. And if we don't start with the why and we start with just the cash flow, then the rest is going to fall apart. Yeah. And so it, it is a very interesting conundrum and it, it's a, you're right. It's even myself. I had to make a decision recently where, you know, there's one group that had access to, you know, five or 6,000 practices where it could be a potential really good referral partnership. And then there's another organization that was kind of their competitor only has access to 900, you know, 900 practices. But when I talked with the owner of the other, this, this group that, you know, only has access to 900 practices in their business. And I and I heard the owner talk about how important it was for her as a service organization to protect the data of the practice. I knew that it was far more important for me to work with this person who, st who stands on the same soapbox as myself to say that, sure, this may not be the best financial decision for my business, but I know that it's the best 
moral decision and why I do this in the first place. Because I know that there's a lot of data harvesting and there's a lot of these things that are happening where basically we're, we as an industry are paying to have our data sold out from underneath our feet, right? And here is a company that's saying, yep, we see the same problem. And she is a former veterinary. She's a, you know, former, uh, associate as well. She's not really practicing now, but she saw the same problem. And I was like, and she's like, yeah, but, it, you know, and even for her, she's like, it might be a better opportunity for you to do this with this other group because it just gets, it just opens the door to so many different practices. And I was like, yeah, but we're speaking the same language. We're, we have the same morals, values, and why we're doing this. And that's more important to me than the potential bottom line. Well, and I think the, the aspect that everyone loses in this is a societal thing is that uh, tying our egos to money to does not necessarily get us what we want. I mean, there's a big difference between being rich and being wealthy. You can be wealthy because you have the ability to get the things that you want, but you may not be rich. Or to live the, the way you want, but you may not be rich. You may not make the most amount of money. I mean, the, the thing is, is, you know, it, if we were to, let's say, as veterinarians, we were to block off what any other profession makes. Are we, are we in dire straits? Are we hurting? You know, human medicine has gone through this. The doctors that, that say, you know, the old doctors who are like, I used to make so much more money, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Are, are the doctors today really hurt? Are they homeless? Are they, <laughs> you know, do they have to eat top ramen for every meal every day? Do they? No, they're still living a fine life. Plus they have the privilege of doing what they do. We have the privilege of doing what we do. Like veterinary med it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Like we've lost this aspect of we are privileged to have learned these skills to be able to, um, to help animals of any type. And anyone who says, oh, veterinary, it, it's, it's veterinary. It's totally different from human medicine. I, I was listening to one of, uh, one of your, uh, previous, uh, podcasts where, um, a veterinarian was like, we need to get away from this whole veterinary medicine. It's veterinary. It has nothing to do with medicine. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Telehealth or whatever. Yeah. Completely yeah. different thought process on it. No, it's exactly the same thing. We are practicing <laughs> medicine. This, you know, I, I look at our practice as, we're practicing pediatric medicine on animals and there's no difference. And I can tell that doctor that because <laughs> I've seen both educations. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's exactly. You've gone through med school and med school. Tweaks. It's the same. And so, but then at that aspect, should we look at doctors and say, well, they make so much more money for doing the same thing. No. What we need to do is block off what they make, look it into ourselves and say, 
am I fulfilled with what I do and is the monetary aspect enough for me to live the way that I want? If it's not, then you have a choice to make to find something else. With that, my drop. <laughs> and I, I always say that because I've already gone over an hour and taken more than an hour of your time. And I, I know I feel like we're going to have to have another conversation because I feel that there's just so much more to dig into there. And really a lot of these problems, you know, like when I go to the vet partners meetings, I can't tell you how many times the idea of, you know, this corporate buyout discussion comes up. And, you know, I've even talked with some other different corporate groups and, you know, as they're, you know, and there's some of them that seem to maybe doing it right. I don't know. It's, it's a very complicated question and very interesting question, but I just really like the mindset you're, that you're taking there is let's get back to the core. Why, why are we doing this in the first place? What are we, you know, what are we doing? So with that being said, um, you know, this last couple of minutes is just a soapbox for, for you. And, you know, to talk about Pine Animal Hospital, talk about TVC, whatever is exciting you. How can people find out more about you? Anything you want to promote, the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Pine Animal Hospital, we're, we're a seven-year-old practice um, here in downtown Long Beach, California, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a fairly large city in Southern California that not a lot of people realize is almost the city in and of itself. But, um, yeah, we, we've been here. We're, um, we're, we're proud of what we do because again, we're just trying to do, to provide the best quality of care, the best service that we can, um, here in Long Beach. And, um, as far as the veterinary cooperative, that, that's a passion project, you know, I, I think it's, it's really important more than just the veterinary cooperative. The, the part that I have found recently, the voice that I have found is that I really just don't want us to turn into corporate practice. I don't want us to go in the same direction that other healthcare fields have, where it's all corporate owned. It's all very robotic. Everyone working there is very much there to, they're there to get a paycheck, um, because whoever is in charge of them doesn't really care about anything but how much money the, um, the business is making. And the humanistic part is lacking. And I think that's a problem in our society is that we're, we're losing that humanism, that, that humanistic approach to, um, to how we treat one another. Um, and it's, and veterinary medicine is a microcosm of that right now. And so I think it's really important for independent vets to stand up, to be strong, to remove this tie of, Hey, how much can I sell my practice to a corporate, um, business uh, for? I mean, we just need to remove that, that aspect and to, have this thought process of we do really good work and we want this legacy to go on to pass it on to other independent veterinarians, uh, whether it's the veterinary cooperative or the independent veterinary society. I think it's really important for all of us to really stand up, be strong, be bold, and um, really 
roll up our sleeves and get into it and make sure that we don't, we don't become all corporate. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Seriously, I felt like it was a little bit of a therapy session for myself and just working mm-hmm. through a lot of these ideas. And it was just, yeah, it was, truly was a pleasure. And we're definitely going to have to do this again because I feel that there, we only started to scratch the surface on the idea mm-hmm. of independent practice and what that looks like. So, yeah, I can't thank you enough. It truly was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was great. And I look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Steve. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.